Folks, welcome inside the Parisi Palace, high above 3773 East Broadway. This is the Jake Feinberg Show. Coming on Power Talk, thank you so much for making us part of your day today, wherever you are in this world. And uh, without further ado, it's a high honor to bring in a cat who uh, grew up really in a major musical family. Um, I, I have to believe that over time, as much as he might have respected and loved his parents, um, the opportunity to create a path of his own, a niche of his own, uh, became paramount in his career. And as a result, uh, collaborated and created music with some really, really heavy cats at a time when the record industry and the camaraderie of live touring music was kind of disintegrating before our very eyes. And as somebody who was born in 1978, I feel it is my um, job and mission uh, to make sure that the, um, that the ability to create live music that feels good uh, carries on uh, to my daughters and future generations uh, long after I've left this planet and uh, get a chance today to speak to a guy who sort of oscillated between the two. Um, and uh, what an honor. Tim Weston, welcome to the Jake Feinberg hey. Show. Thanks, Jake. Thanks for asking me. Hey, Matt, you know, can you talk as honestly as you can? Because it wasn't like you grew up, uh, um, you know, <clears throat> I mean, obviously everybody has adversity, but you, can you talk about how hard it was to grow up in a spotlight with two, with parents that were absolutely <laughs> iconic stars? Well, yeah, it, actually, um, it wasn't that hard, really. Um, by the time... I came of age, my mom had essentially retired, and my dad had transitioned into variety television. Hmm. He was the band leader on a lot of uh, television shows. Uh, Jim Neighbors, uh, Ronan Martin's Laugh-In, he did that pilot. Wow. Uh, Bob Newhart show. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. So it wasn't, it wasn't hard at all, frankly. And the, the, only, the only hard part was how easy my parents made the music business look. <laughs> I'm telling you, man. I, I mean, I'm looking up these songs. I'm not like the hip. I'm not totally hip to your father's uh, discography. or But I mean, the, the covers, the heavy jazz cats that covered his songs, it's insane. It's insane. Well, he wrote two standards. He wrote uh, I Should Care, co-wrote, I should say, co-wrote I Should Care and Day by Day. Oh, my. I and Should so, Care. Every freaking cat <laughs> covered that. Talk about that. I mean, that is, I was just looking it up. I'm like, this is, these are all my people, man. It's unbelievable. Well, that's why my dad always said, don't ever sell your publishing. Because, right. you know, George Benson could decide to do I Should Care tomorrow. <laughs> so, i mean i was like trying to put this puzzle together when i was looking at his discography i'm like wait a minute barry harris all these jazzers i'm like was he on these and then hank mobley i'm like oh wait a minute they're covering his tune that exactly. is ridiculous Thelonious, Thelonious monk too so let's be clear i mean because it, it you know when you the ability to make something that's very difficult look very easy is considered genius in my mind. So what were the things that you're obviously your dad advocated for publishing? Um, but what did they, well, when I, when yeah. I say they made it look easy, what I really mean to be saying is they made it look fun. Right. Because they, they took their music. They didn't take themselves seriously. 
my mom was a very reluctant quote unquote star, uh, but they took their music seriously. But it always looked as a kid to me and my sister like they were having a ball. <laughs> and that's kind of like why I went, well, I guess I'm just going to go do that because that looks pretty cool. I dig, man. I mean, you know, it's it's great. I think what you said is so important. It's a crisis we're having in our country now at all generational levels is um, the vanity and, and how seriously people take themselves. I mean, it's, I think it's important to take your craft seriously, but don't ever take yourself that seriously. That, to me, is the model of great leadership because, um, I mean, do, do you feel like what are the things – let's just take your dad, if anything – what were the most important qualities of leadership or what was the essence that you picked up on the most that you tried to carry on through your own musical career? Um, confidence. I mean, even, even if you don't feel it inside, uh, you have to make decisions and you have to come to conclusions. And if you're producing a record, for example, which is what I finally wound up doing, um, you need to be comfortable in making decisions and moving forward, or you're never going to get anything done. Um, So I think that was the, that's something I learned from my dad. Also, um, preparation and uh, discipline, although I probably didn't learn enough of that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But, uh, you know, um, can you give an example of the, of the you know, fake it till you make it, but at projecting confidence? I mean, a little bit of a, a put a practical example. Well, it's kind of like Ollie Mitchell, the trumpet player, used to say, say straight ahead and strive for tone. Oh, my God. <laughs> I cannot believe you were playing with that band, dude. I, I oh, saw well, that, that big. Was, uh, you know, outside of my dad, Ollie Mitchell was my mentor, and oh, my uh, uh, he, uh, he, he allowed me to get good <laughs> at the expense of a lot of other great players. You know, so that was school. Let me ask you, I mean, you you were essentially a young teenager. I remember talking to Chuck Israel as the great bass player and, and so mm-hmm. much of um so much of modern popular music through the thirties, forties and fifties was basically adult music. And then in the mid sixties with the sort of the revolution of consciousness, summer of love, whatever you want to say, the hippie movement, all of a sudden 75 million teenagers came into the economy with a lot of money. and Disposable income. Disposable income, and all of a sudden the pop music began to be dictated by the youth, which in Israel's mind was really a detriment because before you had all this – I'm going to get the quote up because I, I, there's all these names that I'm not – but, uh, you know, like Mitch Mitchell is an example. Like, you know, the, the, these were the pop music was controlled by adults. And then pretty soon it was, oh, yeah, that's the, the young kids music. That's what the young kids are listening to. I mean, do you remember what you were getting off on in the mid to late 60s? Um, and um, well, yeah, it, uh, the Beach Boys, um, the Beatles. And then a bunch of West Coast groups, uh, like the Birds and the Buffalo Springfield. Then the San Francisco groups like Moby Grape and uh, Sons of Champlin. Dude, the Sun. Um, when did you first listen? You know what's so great? I'm so, I'm telling you right now, man. 
Uh, (laughs) You're like, I know I lived through it. No, the thing, (laughs) the thing is that, that um, out of all those bands, I I know the sons was, weren't a uh, skiffle band, skiffle players or a folk band, but they were the most sophisticated blue eyed R and B group I've ever heard come out of that, that bastion of San Francisco. It, It was just the nastiest, funkiest, and raw it was nasty man it was raw it was more raw than even tower actually way more um, raw but but they were basically an r&b band absolutely uh, but, but the guitar player terry haggerty my man is the first is the first guy that helped me transition to being a jazz uh player i am so or, or that warms my heart dude i need you to break guy yeah, break it break the down guy that. that started playing he started playing bebop licks over rock and roll and blues. <laughs> and I start, I'm listening and I'm going, uh, wait a minute, what just happened there? Dude. I need to, I need to check that out. Okay. I want to, I want to just stop and break this down because Hags is a, a dear friend. I crashed at his house up <clears> in, uh, right off near the cow palace in San Jose with his wonderful wife. And, and, you know, he was playing, uh, his dad was playing with T Garden and Kid Ori and uh, Turk Murphy and I mean he Hags was a bebopper, but you're telling because I mean his influence on well his dad yeah. his dad Frank was uh, was an NBC staffer too I mean he was driving to L A for dates and stuff well no, that's the thing he he said that that the, the greatest how unpretentious the his dad and the studio cats were like the, basically the most expensive thing was like. They'd always bring a bottle of Chivas Regal in there, you know, like you know, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and like and like that. Then everyone would just sort of just cook and and you know, and then they'd go home, and that was it. And and uh, but tell me a little because Carlos and Gar- Santana and Jerry Garcia both um, heavily influenced by Haggerty as peers in that scene because of what you just talked about. You're you're telling me that he was the first cat to start riffing bebop licks over uh rock Blue, over blues yeah wow you know so there was a chromatic element to his playing that you don't normally find in rock and roll or r&b oh man this is so, so and so what were you so you were a west you were marinating that in the way like how do you can you talk a little bit about how you tried to develop your own individual sound on the guitar well, that took a long time. Maybe and still I'm going on. Sure, I'm not even sure I would admit to even having uh, my own sound, but I'm striving for it, and other people have told me that I do. So I guess I'm cool with that. But that's a long process that goes <clears throat> over a long period of time. Um, but my dad gave me a guitar when I was 13. I'd, ha- I'd had piano lessons, and, and my sister and I had piano lessons, uh, but when I was uh, 12 years old, 13, my dad gave me a guitar, but there were no preconditions. I mean, I just took it in my bedroom and started playing and started teaching myself, and I taught myself as much as I could until I needed to be taught by somebody else, and I started taking lessons. Um, but I guess the point is that, there, like, here's the bottom line, is that you go into, you know, let's just say, it's, it's just so humbling today because... Uh, cats are just funneled into academia and especially if it's if it's like a jazz codify if you're trying to codify a language like a street language it's kind of weird isn't it it's <laughs> no but it's like it is so it is so weird i guess that's one word for it it's just it's like there's a right way and a wrong way and the point is when you got your guitar there were no roadmaps 
There were no manuals. It was... No, you just heard something and you went, I want to do... What did he just do? What did I just hear? I want some of that. And fortunately, you gravitate... I mean, there was a lot of music in our house, so there was... Jazz already existed in our house. Um, But I was was a kid. I was listening to the radio like everybody else. Which, in 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 and of itself, was free form. So you were listening to Iron Butterfly and to... Uh, you know, Beethoven into Mahavishnu Orca. I mean, that's how... Well, it kind of goes It goes back to the Haggerty um, connection. I heard the Suns on FM radio, and I don't know... Where, you probably didn't have the experience of transitioning from AM radio to FM radio, but that was huge in terms of the music that you were exposed to. Yeah, no, I would t- t- talk a little bit about... Because I always <clears throat> obsess about... I, I've interviewed, like... Uh, you know, the, the producer, some of the producers from Prestige Records back when it was in, Jer- you know, Rudy Van Gelder Studios. And they, you know, they'd bring in that soul jazz like Charles, Charles Erland. It was not out of the realm of possibility for an AM station in New York and Jersey to play a 10 or 12 minute soul jazz track. Now, that's AM. So yeah. with FM, not only sonically was the music better, but. It was now open to this burgeoning form of music known as rock music. Is that right? Well, the sons, the sons of Champlin were not ever going to get played on AM radio. <laughs> that wasn't, you know, I, did. I was never going to hear. I was never going to hear <laughs> the sons on ninety-three KHJ. Right. But if I went and heard B. Mitchell Reed on on FM, like KMET, um, that's where I heard the sons. I came home from high school one day. I guess probably sixty-eight or sixty-nine. And I turned on my FM radio, and it was it was a Suns track. And fortunately, uh, B. Mitchell Reed back announced the track. In other words, I would have never known who they were. That's right. It was it was like <laughs> off, off loosen up naturally off that first album. No, actually, it was off the second one. Uh, oh. It was called Love of a Woman. Oh my and, god! And so I went to the record store and bought the album, and and that was the rest is you know. But that's sort of the mystery got... of it. I mean, that's sort of amazing. Like, let's say, like, that's the magic and mystery of your generation in some ways. Like, if that if the DJ had never announced the track, then possibly a year or two later you would have heard it again or, you know, like been like, oh, that's what I heard. I mean, that exactly. that's the mystery. That was the magic. Like, I'm glad he did at that time to satiate you. But, I mean, that to me is so – I mean, there is no – I think that's part of the issue, man. Like – I mean, they don't do it anymore. Well, I think regardless of whether you feel you found your own voice, I do want you to talk to younger cats about your process and going about that. A lot of the cats from your generation were, I don't want to say autodidacts, but they were auditory learners. You didn't, TV was still relatively new and antiquated to a degree. Uh, You didn't have a, we're saturated with material today on YouTube and most of it is pretty mediocre. It's so, funny, you know, That's there's too much music now. It's a weird much. thing to say, but there's too much music. And it's. I think there's a Bruce rises to the top, but there's so much music, there's so much milk that the cream can't rise to the top. There's so much cream that... that <laughs> there's, is, no, there's too much milk there's and too not much, enough cream. There's too much milk and not enough cream. <laughs> I mean, yeah. <clears throat> the thing is, like, this whole America's Got Talent and the voice and the American Idol, it's like there's this notion that we're all good, that we're, we're all deserving of, of uh, hmm. attention, hmm. and it, it kind of damaged the music. 
Well, let me back up for a minute because there's just so much swimming in my head. I've done a lot of work with the um, uh, interviewing a lot of the original Merry Pranksters, uh, the, the the group formed by Ken Kesey, and Kesey used to was a improvisational theater, um, you know, wizard and sort of a poet in some ways and a great writer. But you know, he used to the Beatles were interesting because they had this profound impact on our society for a variety of reasons. Um, and yeah, they had a societal impact that went beyond the music. Way beyond the music. But, you know, part of it was like, you talk to um, jazzers that played with Kesey who, in, his, in his acts, in his different theater skits, and they thought, you know, they, one of them in particular, and I wouldn't even call him a snob, I just think he has a lot of musical acumen and he kind of knows what he likes. This guy, Steve Schaefer, and he used to get into these arguments with Kesey about, because <clears throat> Ken really thought that anybody could really pick up an instrument and play music. And, and the Beatles were an example of that. And, you know, and, and what you're saying is that there's sort of like this, um, there, is there really any credibility threshold that people have to meet anymore or they, you know, to become, you can just throw your music out there and throw it into the, the universe. That's a great expression. The credibility of a, a level of credibility. Threshold. That's yeah. A, I mean, I don't need. Threshold. Even, yeah. That's a really. Um, I'm going to steal that. Go ahead, bro. <laughs> no, I'm going to take the milk and cream one. So go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just don't think there is anymore. You know, but I mean, I don't want to sound like a get off my lawn kind of guy. No, you know? no, 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 no. I mean, this oh, is about real deal. This is about talk. I mean, I don't know how. Can you talk a little bit about, as best you can, about the selectivity of, even from your parents, I mean, you know, what made the grade? I mean, again, you had three TV stations, you had radio and records. I mean, it was a pretty streamlined way of taking in uh, music. And now we're just bludgeoned with incredible, we're saturated with mediocrity now. What? Was, yeah, I mean, it's like there was only one talent show. And now every show is a talent show, <laughs> right? And it's just like, and 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 it's also very ego. It's very cele- not celebrity centric, but it's like putting the onus on one person. Like the I never see like the the magic of of. Oh, I mean, I think you're the best person to ask. I mean, I mean, I interviewed Hal Blaine. Rest in peace. I mean, nobody would have known uh, that he did all the drumming on the Beach Boy records. The com- right. the accompanists were absolutely treasured by all these iconic people. Sinatra would not play a club if they wouldn't allow his band in there because if it was an integrated band. I mean, those, right. those guys, even Van Morrison, always considered himself an accompanist. That guy was blowing a sax at the, at the, uh, the uh, lion's share in San Anselmo playing My Funny Valentine, channeling John Coulter. I mean, these guys were like, to me, that's the most humbling part of it is like I get off, one reason I started my show was to bring to light all these incredible people who made all these records become hit records. And now it's all this focus on this one person and this one. And I'm not saying that labels didn't have major acts that funneled there music. There were no videos, though. See, I, video, that changed everything. Right. That, that, like, you know, when Brian Wilson sings In My Room, I want to make up in my mind what that means. I don't want to see a video about it. Exactly. You know, so it's like it takes away a whole element of 
of emotion or empathy, it like takes it away. So all you care about is the visual, you know? Absolutely. And, and that goes for instrumental music as well. Like, like drummers, like all of a sudden with the visual component, people are now copying how people are, how they look when they're playing as opposed to, right. you know, so they're, they're, they're copying body position or, you know, with mechanized, mechanized rhythm, you'll have people, I mean, I've had amazing, credible drummers talk about sitting in a room and hearing someone, pl something going on in another room and they're saying that's got to be a machine and they walk in and it's a human being playing machine parts. So we're getting closer to automate, yeah. you know, we are, we're already there. I just want to ask you, do you feel, well, first of all, I just got to be clear. I want to clear something up. Uh, were you ever in engineering or in that side? Yeah, of I was. Did I, you? Um, I was in, I was on the first two Steely Dan records. Yeah, okay, so that is uh, this is okay, dude. I thought it was I thought it might have been an error on all music. Can't buy a thrill. My daughters and I we rock it so hard. How the heck? Where? How, break down that story, dude. <laughs> okay, so here's what happened. So um, I graduate from high school and I start a year of college, and I'm majoring in music, but I'm really screwing up and I'm just not into it and I'm wasting my time in college and I'm wasting my instructor's time in college. So it turns out that my draft number, they had a lottery back then. Sure. From 1 to 365. And my draft number was 333, which means I'm not going to go to Vietnam. <laughs> right. You were off. So yeah. my, my best friend's number was 32, which means he's staying in college. So I dig. I'm 333. College is not right for me, so I drop out and get a job at the Village Recorder at a recording studio in West L.A. And I spent the next year studying, uh, you know, apprenticing as a recording engineer and wound up um, working on the first two Steely Dan records. Do not pretend to be so humble. Wait, first of all... Well, I was assisting Roger Nichols, so in terms of oh audio recording... Oh, my God, dude. I've been, that's the star. Please talk about that guy, man. I love that well, guy. Well, and Roger and I wound up working um, right up until he passed away um, on on records I was producing. What? So were you around... Uh, I mean, I'm, Village Record... You just... You considered... I remember interviewing Dan Healy, who was the Grateful Dead sound guy, but he was down <clears throat> working with Bill Putnam... Uh, I've interviewed... Um, well, that's over at Western, yeah. Yeah, that's over at West. So, so Village Recorders... Um, Village Recorders was the first major studio west of the San Diego Freeway. I love this. And there, there it were was freeways? Owned by, yeah. I didn't it know was there owned were... by Jordy Hormel, who was the heir to the Hormel Meat Company. Dude, I know that cat. Roger Kellaway used to work with that cat. I cannot believe... Right. Village Recorders. Um, so, right, Village Recorders. So... <laughs> I went to work there at a time where it wasn't on the map yet. And the cool thing about that is, is that when there was downtime and the studio wasn't booked, Jordy used to let us use the facility. Oh, my God. This is so I had bands coming in. I'm engineering. I'm producing. And I'm, I mean, it's all for free. And it was a great time to be studying audio engineering because it was a transition period between old school you know, make it sound good in the room, put the mic in the right place, uh, move the drums over there because they sound better there. It, that was the old school. And then the new school was like, well, let's run this through five compressors and put it through some headphones and then bring it back and see what that sounds like. So it was a combination of learning how to do things right 
and experimenting. So it was, it was ideal. Um, I, you know, I, Roger Nichols, I cannot believe that I'm looking. So I, you know, it's so funny because that whole album um, has an East Coast feel to the songs, and yet it was recorded out on the West Coast. What yeah, do, but Donald and Walter were hardcore East Coast guys. Hardcore. I mean, so what, tell me a little bit about, I mean, that was their trial run. They were not, they they, they became, as you know, I remember talk, interviewing Omardian, and he was like, you know, he's like the Dan would have like a half a million dollar budget. But this, I mean, what well, was, not in the big. Not. In, I want to know what that. What was that from the from like being that you weren't on the firing lines per se? Were they as opinionated and as? Um, I mean, I've interviewed Dean Parks and freaking Jim Kel. All these, you know. Steve Gadd. I mean, they would go through rhythm sections. Sometimes they'd play it, then they'd bring another. Well, and this, but this was. I before, wound up. Yeah. I mean, I wound up working for Walter um, as a guitar player on several projects that was like ten years later. So wow. I kind of knew them as diff- from different points of view. If you know what I'm getting at. What was it like to, when they came in? When you heard the music for the first well nobody knew we didn't know anything we're just making a record nobody knew it was going to be a hit (laughs) no it was just you know we're just going to work um Um, the guy i'm thinking of is gary katz you know he's the producer yeah he was the producer dude that dude was great i these guys were were they just like i cannot believe you were there 20 years old cutting can't buy a thrill in the studio man that's insane and then and all these guys like you know uh were you, did you have um, eyes on becoming a studio shark, for lack of a better word? As a player? Yeah. Well, see, here's the, here's the kind of the thing about my career is the, the upside is I've done a lot of different things. I've been in music publishing, recording engineering, uh, guitar playing, uh, record producing, music supervision. So I've worn a lot of hats. Now, to the detriment of being a player actually i i wish that i'd have just kept my head down and played guitar and just stayed with that but i wound up doing a bunch of different things um for for better or worse yeah i think uh, i think actually some of the i think the the if you had kept your head down would you have been like you know sort of hoping to you know maybe get into that Lee Rittenauer, Fred Tackett, Dean Parks area of studio work? Yeah, yeah, either that or um, really become a hardcore uh, jazz musician. Very. You know, I was going to ask you about that um, because, uh, you know, I've interviewed Kenny Burrell. These guys, like, I mean, that guy was growing up with Pepper Adams, Donald Byrd. They were transcribing stuff off the records. It was like a school in and of itself. Do you, right, I mean, exactly. I, I mean, you were bored in the academy at, at music school. What, like, were you, how did you learn, um, like, can you just talk about a seminal experience early well, on? Well, I'll tell you what yeah. happened. So Can't Buy a Thrill was a seminal experience because My it God. sent me back to, co- it sent me back to college. Really? You, so you got, it was like, wow. It was like, wait a minute, this is the hardest work i've ever done and i'm only i'm only the assistant engineer what okay what were you what was please tell me i'm just a neophyte what was so challenging about it well they're they're perfectionists and uh they were even at that time they were unscrupulous in their perfection well i mean they 
with success came uh, the budgets. Right. But within the limitations of the budget of the first album, they still, you know, they had their standards. And it was very laborious. I mean, it was fun. It was creative, but it was hard work. And I went, oh, man, I can college. I can do college now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you do, because they, we're, we're, uh, this is so amazing because I obsess about the, the, uh, how beautiful the drums, the leakage in the early 70s. Like, were you, like, putting, like, one, one left and one right overhead and one kick drum for Jim Hodder? Like, three – because it was, like, three mics. I mean, were they just constantly – No, 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 no. Yeah. It was more. It was, it was, it was multiple mics. Cause but that's, there, were, yeah. there were overheads, too. Well, but that's what I, I, what, I lo- what I hate about some of the modern recording techniques is that every drum is mic now. So there is no well, le- leakage. Well, yeah, I mean, you want to hear – there wasn't even as much ambience on the first Steely Dan record You're right. as there You're right. was on later ones, you know. Um, You're right, actually. And I mean, I like to, personally, as a producer, I like to hear the room. I, I, I want the drums to ring. I, I don't even mind a little leakage. Exactly. I mean, because if, if you're sitting there and it sounds good, then it sounds good. <laughs> but that's the thing. No, if it sounds good, then it's probably going to feel good. That's the point. I mean, Herb Albert would say early on, with some of those records, A&M records, not even his own. He would just, if the feeling was there, even if there were a couple of flubs, he'd say, let's go with it. Let's just go with it. You know, this, right, is, this is what right. feels good. And I remember Don Randy saying to me, he's like, you know, kind of sometimes only the cats are the ones that are really aware of that stuff. And I really right. love that. Um, did you recognize early on when you, as a player, you know, just, 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 just in bands, nothing professional that, um, in order to find your voice and to, that what makes you, you is that, that making mistakes was okay. You didn't have to play perfectly. You didn't have to play a perfect replication. In fact, if you, if you flub something, then that would might open a portal to new vocabulary. Well, that's kind of the push and pull of studio playing versus improvising music. Um, if you're playing live, it's just, it come, it's gone. You know, if you make a mistake, it's, it's gone. You're, you're already past the mistake. Um, or you gotta, or you gotta figure it out. Like, it's like, okay, if you're playing live, it's like, well, let's all go there now. We have to go in that direction. Right. right, Exactly. If you're listening to each other, like you're supposed to be. Exactly. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Um, but in the studio, you doing that, you know what I'm saying? Totally. I mean, I know, and I, yeah. I mean, as far as your jazz, you know, because you said either, you know, become a jazz player, which quite honestly, I mean, it's so beautiful, this melting pot of when your dad was still, um, you know, both your parents were in the biz. You know, you had guys like Tedesco, Barney Kessel, you know, uh, Howard. Yeah, Barney Kessel was my dad's guitar player. Barney Kessel and um, Herb Ellis. And, and uh, like Howard yeah. Roberts or something, or or that's I mean, I, I, yeah, Howard Roberts played on some of my mom's records, um, but he wasn't one of my dad's records. No, you know like who also was, played on on uh, I think I think Dennis Budimer might have played on some of your mom's records. Yeah, you know, in one of my first uh, dates, I was sitting next to Dennis Budimer. Man, he <laughs> saved my he saved my butt. <laughs> in what, what in what sense? He hummed you the the melody. What, what no, he... no, 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 no. He just like uh, you know, he just cooled me out and made me calm down and and. Uh, you know, it's, it's you know certain dates, movie dates or TV dates can be frightening, 
and very intimidating. Absolutely. Um, much more intimidating than a, like a recording session for a record or or a, a jingle session. Um, so Dennis just was, uh, he helped me to relax. So, oh, this is just mind-blowing stuff. So, um, okay, so fast forward. Yeah. So I finished college. Yeah. Um, and that's when I started uh playing guitar professionally really well i mean i played all through high school and stuff but after i finished college um is when i sort of transitioned into uh professionally playing well we have a game on this program called name that voice um take a listen to this and the content i think it's a good time to bring it in and we'll we'll come back and break it down okay and then mike love I met on my future training course was starting a new record label called Love Songs with actually Charles Lloyd, the, the famous wow. jazz Wow. Yeah, no, that, I mean, he's always, he's with me, uh, his you know, transcending spirit right there. Oh, yeah, well, you know, so Charles also was a TM guy. And then Ron Altbach, who was the piano player for King Harvest, you know, Dancing in the Moonlight, Dancing in the Moonlight. Sure. Ron was a TM guy. So Ron, Charles, and Mike were starting uh, a label called Love Songs. Is that Paul And Mike Farzo? called me on the phone. He says, man, because... Uh, <laughs> I wanted you to listen to the whole story, but yeah, 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 you are, you are, that was my interview with Farso from 10 years ago, Weston. Okay. Oh, that's wild. Okay. Well, so, no, no, I, I just want to... I was in that scene, I was yeah. in that scene too. No, so, we so, used so to so drive this, up to Santa Barbara. So this is what I want to get at, because I've been looking for you for a long time, man, like for a variety... <laughs> and, and I mean, when I, you know, Farso uh, was in the, in the loading zone, which was another one of those amazing outfits out of the Bay Area, similar to the Sons yeah, of Champions. Yeah, and Champ. Doc Kupka was their roadie. I, I just transcribed that story from that interview last night. It's on, it, it, you know, it's, what's amazing. He was, you know, he was in at, at that Berkeley high orchestra was a, a melt. It was just a breeding ground for amazing musicians, but it's like, you know, um, when Farso came out of TM training, you know, he met Mike Love, Mike Love had already gone on one with the Beatles originally, but then they met again and then they came out and he, and there's this, this album celebration and i'm looking at it this is going back years and i'm like wait a minute tim weston is on this i'm like so i was like at that point whatever else you did in your career was like cool but that was that's the ultimate man i i I mean that is my favorite group of cats and i just how did you so were you you were in a transcendental meditation as well no, no, not at all. I think I just got recommended yeah. as a player. <laughs> yeah, right. Actually, you know what? You know who the connection was? Was Jeff Peters, the recording engineer. Wow. So wow. Jeff Peters recommended me to Farzo, I think. Because <clears throat> Farzo was kind of the musical director of that whole scene up in Santa Barbara. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit about, that. would you, would you say that was your, kind of your first big gig? the first record I ever played on was Cheech and Chong, uh, sleep, an album called Sleeping Beauty. Whoa, and there was man. a song, they redid a song called Framed, and uh, I played bass and guitar on that track. So that was the first, I, I don't know if it was a big record, but that was like the first name record. I want to go through on. this with you because your, dis, your discography on <laughs> all music, for what it's worth, that's not always the... The most I've act- never looked at it. I, I should probably go tweak it or something. You should. Well, no, so it goes Camp I a Thrill, and I'm so geeked up that it, you were assistant engineer. Now, you're saying you did Countdown to Ecstasy as well, or the second album, or what? what you did two albums with, with the Dan? 
I think I was like a good luck charm or like they, they liked our banter because the thing about those guys is you got to give back as hard as, you know, they're going to hit you hard <laughs> and you got to hit and you got to hit them back just as hard. Oh my God. Dude. And I think they liked it. And so, um, they hired me back independently. I wasn't even working at the village. You know, I was back in school, but they hired me to do the second record too. The countdown to ecstasy. That's unbelievable. Yeah, unbelievable. Yeah. And so then on all music, and I encourage Tim Weston to go back and tweak this, it jumps to 1977 <laughs> celebration. So let's just fill in those years. Oh, che- no, 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 no. So there's, there's Cheech and Chong. Oh my God. Uh, yes. is, is in between. And, uh, a singer-songwriter named Robbie Patton from England. Oh my! Uh, who went on to have do some records? Um, and there was a soundtrack with Budimer, maybe. Mm, well, that that was just a, a date. Yeah, that was just a record date, or a, you know, a TV date. So I mean, there's a lot of stuff, but like not like known stuff. I mean, the thing about studio work is back in the day, there was a lot of it. There was like you could be like on the B team. Uh, or the C team and still be working. Dude, you know? I would love to be on the C team, man. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there was jingle work. I mean, there was, you know. So, yeah, just we, yeah. Uh, we used to call it factory work because it wasn't like rocket to stardom. It was just like I'm earning a living playing guitar. How cool is that? Dude, it's beyond cool. <laughs> it doesn't um, matter what I'm, it really it doesn't really matter. It really doesn't matter. No, it's really ridiculous. Like Suds and Duds commercials or, I mean, that, and, and so much. So I mean, like, did you? Was there? Uh, this is amazing. So, you, so you know, the Dan seventy two, seventy three. Did you wind up? Um, any anything? Were you were you working the baked potato? Did you wind up working? Cl- were you doing a lot of club dates in and around L A. too? Yeah, I was. I mean, that's kind of that's how I met Dave Garibaldi. Is when he moved to uh, well, that was I'm later. That was eighties. Uh, yeah. Yeah, but then I was in a band on Motown called Doctor Strut. Oh my! Yeah, I'm looking at that. That, that, that doctor. That was on Motown. <clears throat> yeah. Wow. Did you ever have a chance? I mean, can you? Did you? Um, like, how intense? Like, in terms of jazz guitar, were you sort of channeling Joe Pass, or or would you prefer like freer settings? I mean, where where did you where did you lie? In well, term- that was an evolutionary. <coughs> Excuse me. Um. That was an evolutionary thing. When I went back to college is when I finally, I heard uh, Keith Jarrett and Chick Corea improvisational records, right. you know, the solo piano stuff. Cone concert, that was, yeah. That was kind of a light bulb moment for me as a player. And that's when I went, wait a minute, I see what this is now. This, I, I want this. And that's kind of when I put the blinders on and really got into... Uh, jazz aspirationally so my ears kind of opened up i remember one of my uh guitar teachers played a a pat martino record called consciousness dude it's my that changed my that that, that album for it dude i I cannot believe that's how magical the 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 music the light the, the jazz life was the fact that your teacher put on an lp consciousness to this day is the most mind melting album i've ever come across pat is a dear friend he's really not in good health to let you know he's really struggling no i do know yeah and he's he's become a friend you know oh good i'm so you know he's really i mean i feel like 
I mean, I've done about eight hours of interviews with Pat. I've been at sound checks. I'm like, he's like one of my teachers. He's one of my one of the guys that really put me on my path to doing all this stuff. And 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 I look at it, and I'm just asking you to sort of wax poetic on this. But you know, I talked to him maybe a year ago, and he basically was like, you know, I need a double lung transplant. I can't. We don't. We don't want to do. My wife and I don't want to go through with it because I'm not sure if I'm going to make it. Um, and I'm just like, is this really the way? Uh, someone, this hero, this master, this amazing musician and human being, this is how it ends. I mean, life. Well, life yeah, is not like. Did you? When did you get the memo that that you were just? I, I guess that's the point. I mean, I remember Haggerty when I was at his house. He, we, I have it on video. He, he just said he goes. So many of the cats that came up in that scene, quote unquote, and thought that music was going to change the world and all for one and all this stuff. And it's like, he's like, by and large, most everybody in that, that group turned out to be completely narcissistic. And I just wonder if when you realized, uh, what did he, what did he mean by that, Jake? I'm not sure. Let me, let me, uh, you know, let me, let me cue up the thing. I think what he meant was like, you know, they, they, they did not walk the walk after they became big stars they became very inaccessible um and then uh i'm going to cue up the, the, the quote for you but i just want to know early on maybe it was with your parents but when you got the memo that we are all just we are all human beings and nobody is above anybody else ultimately it to this day it's made you a person who's at peace with themselves and not bitter and resentful. Oh, I'll tell you exactly what it is. It's a sense of humor. It's the most important quality in a human being, in my opinion. So how did that, I mean, that came from your... It came from my family and uh, being, ex I mean, it's just, the, it's a way of looking at, at life. I mean, along with empathy and uh, sensitivity, but I think a sense of humor will hold you in good stead in the long haul so what what what, what kind of like i remember cal jader <clears throat> his band at one point in the early 70s had uh uh dick burke was a 400 was grossly overweight drummer john hurd had a stuttering problem Mike Wolf had Tourette syndrome. Cal was an alcoholic. So they were, they poked fun at their ethnicity or, you know, maybe their, you know, little limitations to a degree. Was it just like... I didn't know Wolf was in that band. That's trippy. Mike Wolf was was playing in a dashiki in Berkeley High again, going to festivals. He, dude, there's an album with him on it called uh, uh, Putting It Together. Live show from uh, Concerts by the Sea. It is mm -hmm. most filthy funkiest i mean mike wolf is on fire and he's probably 20 years old yeah you know i met mike through roger nichols through Rod roger's wife connie actually really how yeah wow just small you know different orbits man different orbits of people well no this is really uh, i mean you're blowing my mind i want to read you this haggerty quote um okay he, he said, uh, when I teach guitar players, I'll look at these little guys and I'll go, quote, do you really want to just crush every guitar player or not? And they'll look at me and go, oh, no, we're good. I say, if you're a good guitar player, you're probably lying to me. At your age, you just want to be effing great. He's talking about <laughs> young, younger cats. He goes, to really own it and have you being really developed, it would probably be good 
for you to see it in human terms and not just your own personal success. That's the disappointment with the music scene in general. There are so few people, even within the San Francisco scene, that were really much of anything other than narcissists. I don't really, I don't think that hardly any of these musicians ever thought about big ideas. They may have had a little bit, but they're not uh, the people that advocated for the better world and the bigger open minds and the singularity of things. They were just out that's there. Really, they that's were, really interesting. They were just out there basically doing what musicians have done forever and ever. After the shtick had been presented, they're looking at making their money <clears throat> and doing their thing. Now, he, to his credit, he does point out people like Yorma Kalkinen, who has the Fur Peace Ranch in Ohio, and there's other yeah. people that certainly. But I, you, you understand that that's what he where he was come. What, why do you think that's interesting? Well, I because jazz music. I've come to believe is made in the trenches. Right. Jazz music isn't made at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium, uh, you know, no. or the Cow Palace. Jazz music is in the trenches. It's in the clubs and it's on the road and it's um it's not a money maker, you know. It doesn't it's <laughs> it requires a lot of the listener to, you know, to be involved. Um and so there's always a push and pull between being a studio musician and being an improviser. Um, and there's no such thing as a part-time jazz musician, which is why I don't consider myself a jazz musician. I like to practice. I like to play it. I like to try and play it. But I'm never going to say that I'm a jazz musician because I just uh, I don't live in that world. The jazz life. Living, yeah. living the jazz, which is actually could be uh, somewhat heartbreaking as well. It's a, gr- it's a. Well, re- I think that's why Pat's so tired. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> that, I'm sorry to get. Life, I'm his sorry. Life has yeah. been on the road, you know. Well, you know, it's remarkable. First of all, what the heck did you think after you heard? I have Sherman Ferg. That rhythm section was the band called Catalyst. That, that the one on consciousness. That is the f- my guitar teacher Tom Bruner turns me on to. Uh, consciousness oh my God. but i wasn't ready for it at the time. <laughs> Dude, <laughs> I could, it was you know, not I mean, a pedestrian I connect, album i did i couldn't make sense of it so oh my god you know uh. but then eventually i went you know my as my training progressed and as my ears opened up i went oh my god this is like the guy dude it is the <laughs> sickest i mean i i cannot go it, it's it's an it's the most hypnotic thing i've ever heard of my and it was really you can hear him fusing in all sort i mean the band is so hip right and then there's joyous lake which is a whole other kettle of fish you know it's funny i i just can't get beyond consciousness <laughs> it's like oh, that's trip that's wild well i mean you know what it is i love his late i love baina i love um all the stuff he did on prestige a lot of the soldiers yeah, like stuff. no exit Ex- and, uh, right. Well, exit. But like Joyous Lake, like I've documented. Like I need to go check that out. It's just like consciousness, desperado. That's where I lie with Pat. It's like right, the I nastiest razor's yeah. edge. Um, I mean, ultimately, Tim, do you really think that that lifestyle that you just articulated so well that it has to be full time? that it's a road dog profession, that it's not easy, that it's in the trenches. Is that even a realistic profession in, in today's modern, and I'm not talking about the pandemic, 
But I, no, I, not in, no, not in the slightest. And I'll tell you, an example is all my buddies are teaching. Dude, you just nailed <laughs> my no, jazz musician friends are teaching kids in college how to be play jazz. Do you know what's so funny? I'm so glad to talk to you today because um, I'll just say his name because it's no big deal. But um, Billy Childs and I did a great interview um, earlier this week, and I transcribed. Um, and this is a guy who was on the road with. Freddie Hubbard, his first gig was with J.J. Johnson. I mean, he definitely had, like, that kind of life. I know him. I mean, I'm a huge fan. Right. Great cat. And we had a great yeah. interview. And and what was so funny, so he was incredibly articulate the way we are right now, just just riffing on the realities of the right way and the wrong way in academia to learn jazz when, in fact, there really is no right or wrong way. I transcribed mm-hmm. this story. That culminated with him getting on the road. He didn't even, his friend Kevin Johnson at school was like, hey, you know, my dad wants to start a band with younger cats. Do you want to come over? And he's like, sure. He rings the doorbell. Who opens the door? It's J.J. Johnson. (laughs) He didn't even know his, you know, he freaked out. Next thing you know, he's going to Japan with J.J. Anyway, so he's kind of, you know, he's not dissing anyone personally. He's just talking about the realities of the fact that when you teach a right way and a wrong way, then all of a sudden you're going to get a homogenization of sound and all the cats are going to come out sounding the same. Okay? It's an assembly. Well, yeah, I mean, and, you, can, there, you can teach elements and you, there's things to learn. No, right? I, want, I just want to finish the story because you're going to, this, is what le- this is so oh, classic. Okay. So I put up the okay. story. It starts to get traction amongst the older cats just because I have a wide following. And he, like, freaks out and calls me, emails me, texts me. He's like, Jake, please take this down. You know, it's out of context. It's not what I – and I and I called him up. I said, Billy, yeah. you know, I said, I just want to tell you, I've been doing this for 10 years. This is my gig. I would never tell you how to play the piano. I'd much prefer if you just told me that, you know what, Jake, I'm afraid that I'm going to alienate the peop- – the, the, I'm going to bite the hand that feeds me because right now, what is he doing – to get paid during COVID, he is teaching at Berkeley, and he's petri- mm. he's petrified that even an excerpt, which is not, there's no, there is nothing incendiary about it. He was no one held a gun to his head to say what he said. The minute right. it goes into print, he's like, "Oh my God, I'm teaching at one of these institutions that I'm talking about as being a problem with the music." It's so funny that you bring up this idea. You're right. Everybody to make a living is teaching, and that is not jazz. No, it's not. It's a day gig. <laughs> it's a gig, man. And it's just like, it's just, it, it, it crystallized. And I said, Billy, I'll take it down. I never do this, but I'll do it for you because I respect you. But at the same time, if, you know, next time I just wish you could own it and say, instead of saying, well, writers do this all the time and they take stuff out of context, why don't you just say, you know what? I'm actually employed by, a uni- uh, by an institution and I don't want them to think that I'm bashing them. You know, it's like that, you yeah, know, and then that's, yeah. but to be in that kind of boat and for, I, I, I mean, I am trying to, in my own way as a non-musician, I am trying to affect change in music. I want new musical vocabulary to grow. And I just ask you if you were, maybe you do teach your students once in a while, but it's like, no, no I'm, I'm not teaching. You're not teaching, but, but you know, would you just <clears throat> recommend people to unplug completely and to like create their own tuning, like how, what would be your advice to people who literally want to go off the grid and find their own voice? Um, Improvisation, <laughs> and I'm talking about improvisational music, like a guitar or an instrument that you would play in a, 
in a setting maybe I, and I hate that word jazz anyway, but in that kind of setting, what would be your advice to those cats? To, to, to find your own voice? Yeah, well, to, I, mean, I mean, ever, I mean, because you may, you may not ever find it. But you it, might not right. even have one. That's right, because what I'm saying, like, if you, if, if, let's just say, let's turn back the clock and say Tim Weston was a hungry, rabid freak like you were in 72, and yet you had all this other distractions in place, all this visual distraction in place. All, what would you do? Would you just unplug completely? Like, how would you go about? No, 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 no not in this. No, I would play with as many different people as I could. I would, I would be out there playing with other people and listening. I mean, I would be devouring other guitar players, listening and just taking it in like a sponge. In, a, in a live context, not sitting on YouTube watching it. You'd be out. No, no, every, all of it. All of it. Yeah. But okay, let's let's just say let's just say what it, for what it is. I mean, in seventy four, seventy five, there was a live music was a still a huge part of our culture. There are Absolutely. barely any clubs to play in anymore. So I mean that that's a hard balance to be able to. Well, yeah, I mean I see what you're. I mean you're up against it now, aren't you? I mean, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. I mean, there's no places I mean, to Pat go. I isn't going to put. Uh, Danny Gottlieb and Mark Egan in a van and drive around <laughs> the United States. If that and happens, we know there's going to be a renaissance. Exactly that would happen. Yeah, dude, you know what? But that was, oh man, you just nailed it. Tim Weston having a ball with this cat. Can you just please talk about, I know you weren't a TM cat, but like what was the vibe like <clears throat> with that group? I mean, that record is a $300 record. I'll never find that record. It is, is it the celebration record, dude. It is ridiculously expensive. I don't even. I don't even know what it sounds like. I mean, I have. You've never. It. Okay, so what? But I mean, what is? What, what are the? Tri- <laughs> oh, I mean, I'm sure I have a copy. Um, I'm sure you do. We did dude. more. Yeah. We did more than one project with those bunch of guys. Now, because I was going to say, Mike Love solo record. I don't even know if it came out. And we did some other. Like celebration was only one of a few. We did other stuff. C- we actually did a date with Charles Lloyd in, at Santa Barbara Sound. Oh, are you? Tell me about, please. What? What? what when was that? That was during the whole uh, time period of when I was working for those guys. So, love songs. The label comes out, <coughs> and 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 Farso gives you a call one day. And what happened? And you, where was where was? Well, the- we would like go up. We would. Uh, it was me and Kevin Brandon, and a, a drummer named Kim Calkins, and we were the rhythm section. So we would go up there and stay at and stay at Mike Love's place. He had like a compound up in Santa Barbara, and we would just like I don't like what are we going to record today? I don't know. Just show up and they'll put something in front of us, you know. Wow. <clears throat> so it was. Um, that's what that was about. It didn't last very long. Right. It was um, almost like the tail. I'm just looking here. Uh... And to be quite frank with you, Mike Love isn't. The, greatest cat to work with i you know what i i you know what i appreciate the i don't assume that i don't i don't want to make a judgment either way it's just i i was trying to figure out with all i mean literally paul i was going back because i knew we were going to do the interview today so i was going back to listen to my interview with farso and he was literally i mean this is how amazingly magical and elastic the regional music was in this country was that he was ready to go on this this teacher training course for tm and his manager called him. He sold his Hammond organ after he left the zone. And the night before he's about to leave, his manager <clears throat> calls him up and says, hey, man, um, 
I just got a call from Janice, and he's like, Janice who? He's like, Janice, Jop- <laughs> Janice Joplin. She wants you to join her band and play, be organ player. And he's like, well, uh, I'm kind of already set for the TM thing, so please uh, you know, just let her know uh, I'm humbled, but I can't do it. And then six months later, she was passed away. So, I mean... So the interesting thing about the TM aspect is it was never apparent on any of the dates. It wasn't like, it wasn't put upon us or, or discussed. I mean, that was like all separate. I mean, the greatest thing about that scene to me was meeting Paul Farzo, who is a great musician and a great guy. Can you talk about Paul? He's a dear, he's a dear friend. I haven't spoke to him in a long time, but I've been listening to his voice quite a bit. What, what was it that, uh, I mean, he, he is a pretty heady musician. He, he he's a funky, greasy cat. I mean, and he's a great player and a soulful singer. And um, we just like a lot of the same music. Did you did you have a chance to? I'm looking here. Like it looks like this 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 Charles Lloyd album, Weavings or something. It's 1978. This to... wasn't. I don't even know, Jake, if this date like turned into anything. I mean, a lot of times you'll go on a date and and with somebody but you don't, that stuff might not even come out dude you know, like you'll get paid for the session but you know it may never even get pressed as a record right, right? some yeah. of the best playing i ever did was on a, a deborah laws record oh you know, my laws yeah family. of course some of the best like studio stuff i ever played is on a record that's in the can oh. <laughs> i love it i mean i'm sorry that it's just the perfect thing i mean um you just have to let go you can't you can't think about that you know just on to the next thing the um your name keeps coming up in the in the zeitgeist of um of all these interviews that i've done and i want to read this uh this quote to you it's actually believe it or not my first book you are in my first book because i've done quite about six interviews with garibaldi and in one of them which i'll send you he told this story and it wound up in my first book he said i was living in la and i was approached um, by a leader, Tim Weston, whose father was actually Paul Weston. His mother was Joe Stafford, uh, the great singer from the 50s. His father was the head of CBS Records for years. Uh, he wanted to start a band. He approached me about it, and we put it together, wishful thinking. In L.A., there were no bands, so all the guys we got wanted to be in a band. We kept the same people together and made music for a while. We did a lot of gigs and wrote a lot of cool music. And, you know, just for the rep, and I'm sure you know this, but, I mean, he... I mean, the Tower of Power, it was so out of control with the drugs that David had to get out of there. And he left in, and, and moved to L.A. And when he got there, he's like, this is kind of whack. There's no bands. It was very different than the San Francisco scene, which was really built around uh, groups. So then he well, found... I mean, I would say that that quote is 95.5% accurate. Okay, so what? fill in, fill, fill in the rest <clears throat> of the truth. Well, I actually put that band together, and Dave, I met Dave when he first came to L.A., and we just wound up on some gigs together just by accident. Um, he actually did the Ollie Mitchell band a couple of times. He did. And then we would just find ourselves on sessions or, or on, a, you know, club gigs or something, because he was, he was just trying to make it in L.A. He'd moved out here with Peggy, his wife at that time, and their daughter Lisa, and... Um, he, I think he had just come from Ohio, where he was kind of living in a religious um, compound of some sort. He was, yeah. So, so I met Dave at the same time 
I'm deciding to put a band together because Dr. Strutt had broken up. It had run its course. It's very hard to have a band in Los Angeles because everybody needs to eat. And, and uh, you know, usually bands are put together. It's a guy and his tunes and whoever he can get to show up that night. So that's not a band. And uh, a band is, is a group of a set, a bunch of guys. And if one guy can't make a gig, you don't do the gig. Also, a band is letting the music to evolve as opposed to just playing an arrangement, you know, that's written out. So I wanted to do a new band, and <clears throat> I was obviously a huge fan of David's talking about somebody who has a voice on their instrument i mean there's a perfect example absolutely you know i mean that's dave garibaldi that you hear it immediately totally so okay so i have an idea for a band it's 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 going to be a combination of funk and and bebop uh you know contemporary jazz is what i called it i i didn't really call it fusion but i guess you could call it fusion you can call it anything you dude want. i need first of all i just want to be clear i need if you have any Analog cassettes of a live performance of that band. With I need to hear it. I, I have. Well, to. I need to find them, but I have. Get them out. Let's get it. Are... Let's make it a project, dude. Because this, to me, like this is magical stuff. I think this is the point. I, I, I maybe I misread the quote. He was he. You, it was definitely your band. Um, it just it was it, definitely my. It band, was definitely your band. He joined the band. He just there was it, what he couldn't believe. Again, he was also uh, in a very uh, like you said. He was. Um, ensconced in deep proselytizing and Christianity to a degree at that time. But the point is that when he, he just could not believe that coming from San Francisco where there was just, it was all about being in bands. There were just no bands. I think it was, he said that just, it was a lot of fun for, for that period of time. But if you have tapes of that stuff, what were the, what were the venues you guys were playing at? Um, well, we play, We actually, for a time, were uh, booked by William Morris, so we did. We were opening for some really good groups. Um, we played Le Cafe. We played Bon Appetit. We actually never played the Potato because we didn't have to. We were making good money down the street. That's so cool. So you were you were the the the, the ethos that you just riffed on about being a band. You guys were. You guys were able to. You weren't starving to death. You, you were able to put food on the. You were. You were able to eat. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, but we didn't. You know, we were also trying to keep our own careers, um, our own careers going. At the at the time, I was transitioning into record production. Which, interestingly enough, a side point. Bill Champlin did the background vocals on the first record I ever produced. Which was what? Which was a, a Japanese pop singer named Etsuko Sai. Dude, this is ridiculous. What year was that? What year was that? That was 84. And Champlin belting it out on the bat. Unbelievable. So at the same time, okay, so wishful thinking, we put wishful thinking together. Um, the last guy to join was Jerry Watts, the bass player, because we auditioned like a bunch of bass players. But as soon as Jerry and Garibaldi locked together it was like well we're done everything's great <laughs> Every, everything is great so we um we also started recording right away uh and wound up finishing our album and then placing it so we were recording almost from the get-go think again is garibaldi on that one that, that's the second record the first record is just called wishful thinking we need to get on all music and get your get your credits really up because it starts 
it goes the Ollie Mitchell Sunday Band into uh, Think Again. So there was one before that. Oh, yeah, that isn't the Think Again was the second record. So, um, like, you had, did you actually guys have an, you were literally a local band cutting records. Did you actually go on any tours at all? Yeah, we went to Brazil, and uh, which was an eye-opener. It was wonderful. And we went to, uh, we did an East Coast tour. Um, but we didn't do, we didn't get in a van. <laughs> and, and we probably should have gotten in a van, if you know what I'm saying. Well, dude, you, you probably would have caught fire. It would have been, a, you would have been road dogged, <clears throat> but, but it, it would have gotten your name around the, the But the, see, we all wanted to stay in L.A. Totally. No, uh, I get it. You know. I get it. I mean, why, why, I couldn't ask a better person who saw it up front. Um, you know, I've talked to Joe Sample, Ernie Watts, Harvey Mason. I mean, the fact that, um, I mean, there was a lot of things that went on. There was a contraction, uh, from 300 record labels down to the six major ones. Uh, radio right. stopped. Radio got incredibly constricted so that whatever, you know, before you could hear regional radio, like you said, uh, and then at a certain point it got streamlined where whatever was playing in Maine, you could hear in San Diego, but in your mind, um, it's not like people didn't want to be in bands. It just became something that was not realistic as a profession. Why? Exactly. Why did like we? Yeah. Sorry. No, go ahead. No, I mean, I, I people always say, "Well, it was uh, Gloria Gaynor, disco, the DJs." Uh, all of a sudden, it was it was it was more incentivizing for club owners to bring in one guy instead of having to pay a quintet. What happened? Why? Did bands, I mean, even today, my peer, I'm 42, about to be 43, and, you know, my peers who are road dogs and playing music I love, and I love to go and heal from it, I mean, dude, they're barely getting paid, man. It's weird. No, they're, they're, the music business is done. I mean, what that's happened? A whole what other, happened? That's a talk for another day. No, man. no, we're going to do set two. We're not, I just, real, at the, at the core, why was Garibaldi saying there were no what happened to bands? Why did it become... Well, what David was saying was there were no, uh, there were no bands in the sense that um, what David... A band is a place where you can be creative and feel comfortable. You're not the front man. You're part of a team. Mm -hmm. But yet you're being creative and you're exercising your creativity through the band. Now, if it's Brandon Fields and his book of tunes... And the guys that he can get to go play the Spud for on a Friday night, that's going to be some great music. There's going to be great music made, but that's not a band. Right. That isn't a bunch of guys. Music evolves. Uh, that's what that's what having a band means. Totally. And then there, and, and what you're saying is, starting really in the early '80s, it became um, well, we're not going to give. I mean. We're not going to let anybody cultivate and get and try to work stuff out. It's got to be a hit right away, or let's get them out. Or, or, or they're right. Well, if you don't, if you don't get a record deal, so you, like when I was in Doctor Strut, we had a record deal with Motown, and we made two albums for Motown, and we made a third album uh, for a Japanese label that never came out in the states. Um, but also, uh, Doctor Strut was Yvonne Elliman's backup band. So that kept Dr. Strutt as a unit together, plus we're working for Yvonne Elliman, so that's how we're making money. I dig. I, 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 so really, the, the, that was 
you were able to, to do what you really wanted to do because it was being offset by playing with Yvonne. Exactly. Exactly. That is so. Mm. Now record deals. Now record deals are gone. Who, who? Nobody needs a record deal anymore. Nope. <laughs> um, and you're not getting. And you're really like what we talked about at the beginning. Um, intellectual property is not uh, worth anything anymore either. No, the only thing that's worth anything are your two hands and a live gig, and whatever that gig pays. <laughs> <sighs> It's back to art, frankly. <laughs> it's not a business anymore. It's just music. Oh man, uh, you're. 100. I want to, but I, we got to do set two. I want to finish set okay. one. I want to do set one by asking you about uh, this ridiculous album <clears throat> that I've actually never seen. Uh, Tony A. K. Life in the Food Chain. Um, oh, at Shangri La, you were there, guard with. With uh, all these cats, Marty Greb, rest in peace, Garth, Fraboni, Dick Day, right, um, right, and then uh, that's a there's a vill- that's a Village Recorder kind of related. Uh, record. Well, no, it, it says recordings at Shangri La <laughs> Village Recorders. So I mean, what was that? Uh, the, this mercurial guy? I've never he left the body, but his name was um, Herth Martinez. I thought I saw him on here. Anyway, uh, uh, what was that session? Who is Tonya K? Um, I can't remember his last name, but his first name was Steve. He was a really nice, funny guy, uh, songwriter. Um, I can't think of it. I mean, he it, it was just, it was another orbit of musicians. Uh, Claude Pepper was the drummer in Dr. Strutt. Uh, Peter Freiberger was the bass player. And we wound up doing demos for Steve. I can't remember. Tony O.K. is an alter ego name. Steve um, Krikorian, it says. That is. That's okay. That's Tony OK. Yes. Oh, wow. Very bizarre. Very. So we were doing publishing demos for Steve, and then he got a record deal. That's as simple as it, that, it is. That's it. And so he pulled us in to play on the record. Village recorders still open today? Oh, absolutely. No, but, uh, but let's, let, let's, just, let's just end on this. I mean, how. Like you said, it's music has become art now. Before it was monetized, you you you're a living proof of that. You spent hours in there with with the Dan and many other people. What does it look like today? Is there any kind of industry coming out of something like Village Recorders? I mean, I, you know, to me, it's like oh, uh, it's all uh, it's all television or film work. You know, yeah. it's um, it's that kind of stuff now. Are you, were you playing a lot before the pandemic or is there? Not really. I haven't played a gig in maybe five or six years. I mean, I play every day, but I have a home studio and um, I'm involved in in my parents' um, music and the perpetuation of their legacy. Um, Well, let's, I mean, let's, let's pick up on that. You know, let's do part two. Here's an example. Yeah. If you're making a motion picture and it's about the 50s to the late 50s and you want to pinpoint it musically, you're more than likely to pick a Joe Stafford record (laughs) to play. And fortunately, check this out, my mother's entire Columbia Records recordings are owned by our family. I saw that. And as a caveat, your mom donated everything to the my the my my alum my uh old master's degree college university of arizona i live in tucson 
Well, the reason that all of my folk stuff is that you, uh, Arizona is University of Arizona, and our stuff is just languishing there. Wait a minute. I, I'm um, sorry, you cut off for a second. Why is it? Why was it? Why is it here? Well, the whole reason we placed my parents' stuff at University of Arizona, there's no familial connection to the University of Arizona. It was a guy named Keith Pollock who's an incredible curator who was at the U, and he brought us into there like he brought in nelson riddle and ronstadt and Artie shaw wow how am i not there's an amazing amount of music at the university of arizona that nobody knows about because the people at the u don't really care um it's languishing i god that (laughs) bothers me i i uh we got to excavate that stuff immediately well we're in the process sort of of trying to get it somewhere else but it's tricky you know it's funny i you know amongst the the joe the joe stafford collection of the late 50s i i would hope that there's some you know really smoking dizzy gillespie bebop alongside of it you know like that that was the most amazing time in in america one of the most amazing times in american music history i'd also say that when you started on the scene in the early 70s, uh, from my point of view, it, what you could I don't think a bad record was made in 1972. I don't think so. I don't think Steely Dan would get signed in 2021. I, I completely think you're correct. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, Tim Weston, man, you are a genius, man. It's so nice to connect with you, bro. Let's let's do set two. Uh, this, I'll have this up later tonight, so uh, and we'll blow it out to people. And uh, I, 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 I really I can't thank you enough, man. Hey, man, it was a pleasure. Uh, send me a link so I can check it out. Oh, absolutely. It'll be up on my podcast, so I'll, I'll, I'll send you a link later. Okay. Yeah. Do you want an email for me? Um, let me? I'll send you a message, and then you can give it to me over in the message. Okay, solid. Be cool, man. All right, talk to you later. Later, man. Bye. Bye. Classic individual, Tim Weston, from the uh, lineage of a deep musical family that um, sadly has become more art than business these days but we will continue on that's it for the jake feinberg show we'll see you later